You're listening to Dose of Depth Podcast. I'm your host, Deborah Lukovich, and I invite you to be curious about your unique experience of being human. In this podcast, we'll explore the deeper meaning of ordinary life experiences through conversation, stories, and education. You might have a serious aha moment, or you might just be amused by the movie your life seems to be imitating, or you might just be entertained by one of my awkward stories. I'm hoping you'll become more aware of those moments when a deeper part of you is prompting you to see things differently and maybe even go a new direction. So let's get started. In this episode, we're going to talk about my favorite topic, sexuality. Let me clarify. I said we're going to talk about sexuality, which is different than sex. Like spirituality, the archetypal energy of sexuality is so huge and complex and mysterious and wields so much power over us that any attempt to wrap your arms around the most minuscule component of the topic needs to be done with humility. Some can handle the exploration and others run to rigid belief systems because it's just too much to handle. Think about it. It can feel terrifying to experience this power which manifests through attraction to and lust for others or involuntary physical arousal exerted by others over you. Without a framework to think about it, one's emotions could include anger, misogynistic words and actions, and even vengeful violence. I love this quote by C.G. Jung, one of the founders of Depth Psychology. Quote, With the exception of religious longings, nothing challenges modern man more consciously and personally than sex. End quote. And the more people try to control and limit others' expression and exploration for personal truth as they relate to these two most powerful instincts, sexuality and spirituality, the more energy that gathers in the personal and collective shadow, energy that finds its way into the world via destruction in the form of sexual violence, whether within intimate relationships religious or other communities, or on a collective level such as human trafficking and the mass killing of souls through rape. So today, I'm excited to have a conversation with another PhD friend, Dr. Sean Miller, who earned his PhD in philosophy from Marquette University. His focus is the philosophy of sex, relationships, sexuality education, gender, and how to increase well-being through sexuality. Sean currently teaches in Utah and through writing and instruction teaches students and others creative ways to think about their relationships, gender, and sexuality from a philosophical perspective. Like I said, this topic is so huge and today we're going to take on a small piece. I hadn't really realized the need to talk about this until I read a chapter Sean wrote for another book titled Heterosexual Male Sexuality, A Positive Vision. The first sentence of the chapter pulled me in, and I knew this is what needed to be the focus of our conversation today. It seems we could use some positive visioning these days when it comes to all sorts of topics, including male sexuality. We're all suffering under patriarchy, not just women, so I'm excited to offer my listeners an opportunity to broaden and widen the conversation when it comes to how we think about male sexuality. Oh, and it might amuse you to learn that the seed for this interview was planted back in 2016. Sean was my third or fourth online date following the unraveling of my 24-year marriage. Can you imagine the first date at a bar between two PhD students, one studying the philosophy of sex and the other exploring women's experience of reconciling sexuality and spirituality? 
I knew there was more meaning in my encounter with Sean than I was conscious of, and now here we are. So let's get started. Well, welcome, Sean. You have moved around a little bit, and now you're back in Utah. I've never been there, but I do hear it's beautiful. And yeah, how's your summer been? And are you ready for a new batch of students at school? Yeah, this summer has been interesting because it's been both busy, but also relaxing at the same time. Um, it's relaxing in that I'm not teaching this past summer, so that's sort of relaxing. I got to explore Salt Lake a little bit. I think it's important to explore the city that you're living in just so that you can kind of feel rooted and get a good sense of where you're at, but also busy by taking on new projects and teaching a new class this upcoming fall semester. And I'm just excited to take on some new students to read material with them. Great. Well, that sounds perfect. Sounds like a perfect summer. So let's jump in. Um, as a depth psychologist, I'm always interested in how that part of our psyche that we refer to as the self with a capital S or our deeper inner being, how it guides us towards unfolding in a way we can't always see or make sense of. In fact, rarely are we able to connect the dots until there's enough time to look back and see what once couldn't be seen. We might notice that we've been fighting something and that's what led to midlife unraveling. That's me. Or we might feel affirmed that we were open to being led by this mysterious force. So I'd love to start by having you share your story, whatever you want, a little bit about your background and how you came to this topic of sexuality through a philosophical lens. And then also like maybe even defining for my listeners, what does that mean when you're looking at sexuality through the lens of philosophy? So let's hear yeah so i was born and raised in utah and i didn't have a conventional utah upbringing i mean um, my parents were sort of counterculture to the utah culture and i just kind of grew up with that uh, the high school i went to was very diverse and when i went to college at utah state university um i i noticed that some of my peers acted a bit more strict in terms of sexuality and gender and being from Utah, that made sense, but I didn't have the language for it on what they were doing. Uh, for example, whenever there was some sort of outing, we would go to a party or whatever, I noticed that most of my peers would uh, be very judgmental towards the women in the group based on how they were dressed or how they looked. And especially for an outing, uh, they were very critical of that. And that sort of bothered me, but I didn't have the language or the criteria to explain why. It wasn't until um, my junior, senior year in college where I took enough philosophy classes that what I realized what they were doing was gender policing. And mm -hmm. all of that policing is because there are certain norms that we all hold on into in society. And if certain people, certain genders don't, we judge them. We criticize them saying, you got to get back in line to stay within those norms. And by taking all those philosophy classes, I was able to really reflect on what sort of positions people have in society. But also I can reflect on whether those norms are really good norms, whether those values about traditional gender norms are really good values to have. And so that that philosophical insight really gave me some tools 
on questioning those ideas, questioning those norms. And it gives me a, a bigger process to think about what are some ways that we can correct that? What are some ways we can fix that? And I didn't know what to do originally on how to fix that until towards the end of my college career, I took a human sexuality class and we had to do a major final paper. And I wanted to really talk about this gender policing stuff and how to correct that. And I thought, well, the only way to do that is to have some sort of sex education, but it's gotta be more expansive. It's gotta be broader. Uh, because I don't know about you, Deb, but in my sex education, it was very restrictive in terms of reproduction and puberty and avoiding STIs. That was it. And so I thought, well, in order to talk about norms and values and bringing in gender, uh, we, we have to have a more expansive sex education. It's got to be more of a sexuality education. And I think bringing in philosophical tools in that line is very helpful to, for students to kind of question those norms. You know, what's, in, you know, what's interesting is, um, I, my experience of sex education, I think was quite progressive. I'm older than you. So let me think it was in, I was, it was in the seventies when I was in middle school and we, and I went to a Catholic, um, grade school and we had very open conversations. And in fact, I remember just being so embarrassed because we had this night where all of our parents and us came to this event at night and we had like snacks and drinks and whatever. And students were allowed to submit a question. Any, nothing was, nothing was uh, restricted, any question and all the questions I was like, Oh my gosh, seriously. But, but that's how open it was. And I sort of feel like the seventies and the eighties, we peaked at so many things or like being able to honestly explore. So it's, it's interesting th because I think after that became the movement to really mm -hmm. restrict sex education. And it turned into what, what we're going to talk about a little bit about these, these two sort of camps that mm -hmm. are on the other side. Um, so before we get to the specific topic of heterosexual male sexuality, because in my introduction, I said, that's what we're going to talk about. I think first sharing what you explored in your dissertation, um, and you kind of set us up for that might be a good foundation. Um, and of course we could have several conversations about your research. <laughs> so maybe we could just be, you know, stay on the high level, but I like how you talk about, cause I hadn't really, again, we don't have a framework for like, even how to, even how to like categorize what is going on. So I like how you talk about how sex education has ended up falling into two camps and three different moral foundations that underlie the actual sex education programs that are in existence right now. And your abstract actually does a great job of sort of summing this up and why this all is not, it's inadequate the way that we're doing it now and actually harmful because the programs end up obstructing the development of what you say a young person's authentic character is. So there's like, there's no room to like train individual young people to actually explore on their own, to have critical thinking basically about becoming a sexual being. So if you could um, talk a little bit about this and help my listeners, and also because, you know, your dissertation is it's academics, but maybe you can work in like, 
like, here's how that plays out in, you know, actual harm to individuals or a community or, or whatever it is. So, yeah. So just go wherever you want with that. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think the way that sex education has been operating probably in the last 20, 30, 40 years is it's been divided into two camps. One is what I call a paternalistic camp. And this is mostly abstinence only sex education. So it's paternalistic because the people in authority figure that uh, young students either are not rational enough or they're, uh, they're still at the beginnings of their sexuality and their gender that they need some help. And that help is, well, they're not ready enough to be sexual. So we're just going to teach them don't be sexual until they're ready. When is that? Typically, it's marriage. And that framework suggests that any sort of sexual activity or any discussions of sexual activity is not on the table. But for some reason, as soon as they're married, all of a sudden, they're ready, which a lot of people are not because they never had the background. They never had that discussion before. So that's paternalistic. The second camp is what I call a liberal framework. And this puts the power back into the students where they make certain choices, where they can actually engage in thinking about their sexuality and their gender. But um, that's divided itself into two moral ideas, two moral assumptions. So there's where all three moral assumptions come into play. So into the liberal camp, we have what I call a consequentialist view, which is focusing on uh, the outcomes. And mostly it's the unwanted outcomes. And most of that just means that the teachers are trying to teach the students to avoid uh, unwanted pregnancies and STIs. And of course, the, the basics such as reproduction and puberty. But that's basically the education is to avoid unwanted consequences. The other side of the liberal camp is where I think we're at right now is a consent-based sex education. And I find that much better than the previous two because with consent, now you're talking about the intentions and the motivations of the, the students. And it's really trying to get a better framework of, well, do I want this? Do I not want this? How do I say yes? How do I say no? Now, all of that those, those different ideas, those different moral assumptions, I still think there is something missing. All three of those moral ideas take on an ethical idea that in order to do the right thing or to avoid the wrong thing, you have to focus on behavior. You have to focus on actions. And I think that's just short shrifting what it means to be a sexual being. To be a sexual being isn't just activity. It's thinking about who you are as a person. It's thinking about who you are as a character. And if we're just teaching about consent, for example, there are ways that you can teach someone to do the right thing, but they might have this character where they don't, they don't care about consent. And that seems to be off-putting, where you have someone who is going through the consent behavior, but inside they don't care about consent so i think character has to play a role where 
they not only give consent offerings or receive consent, but they actually care. They show that they're genuine in their consent behavior. And so what underlies the behavior should be some sort of character. And that's why I think sexuality, education, that broader view is much more important than just focusing on uh, what to say, what to do, and any sort of behaviors and activities that, that kind of goes along with what we typically think of sex education. Yeah, and and today we're not focusing on on consent, but again, I think uh, there's limitations to focusing on consent because, as you write in a, another chapter in another book, that it, then it's just all about how do I get consent, how do I trick somebody, manipulate mm -hmm. them, get consent. So again, like I love that you're talking about character and. Also, these models are inadequate because sexuality isn't always about the sexual act. Sexuality is an energy. There's arousal, there's attraction, there's affection, there's, and it's not always supposed to lead to sex, but that's sort of what it's assumed. So then, you know, so much misunderstanding and miscommunication happens because we just equate sexuality with sex or the desire to have sex without really even exploring what does this attraction really want from me? Maybe it doesn't even want me to, you know, to pursue sex, the sex act. Maybe it's, maybe it's creative in nature. And so now I've gone and I've like pursued something that it wasn't even really about that. So the, the models that we have don't take that into account at all. Um, so in your dissertation to address this, the inadequacies of the current sex education approaches, you explore a model that gets at this deeper level of developing sexual character. So could you introduce my listeners to the concept of care of the sexual self, uh, what that means, and then how to develop the sexual self through what the Greeks called eschesis and these three components, which I was, wow, like, this makes a lot of sense. This is about like developing the capacity for critical thinking and self-reflection, basically. Um, I like how you define what a comprehensive sex education program does. It's very different than what is being taught, but that this would help students train moral character by disciplining, by self-disciplining, whether, you know, these different components are coming from it's like this balance between their inner being and inner knowing and what they're being told and the information that they're getting from the outside. And, and that really brings to life C.G. Jung's um, theory about reconciling opposites and also the danger of groups because group norms eventually become stagnant. And so what is the process of challenging those? It's being able to say, okay, there's value in these group norms or there was value at one time or whatever it is, but now there's this inner knowing I have something's not quite right. And so how do you develop that sort of inner discipline? And, and it is a discipline to then, okay, no, we got to you know, change this up a little bit. We need to, and in the end, it should move towards increased consciousness, the evolution of humanity and compassion and love and tolerance, et cetera. So um, again, if you could talk about this, you know, developing sexual character, care of the sexual self and this um, ascesis is just a great framework 
for, I mean, like even right now knowing, oh, this is how I could think about this. It could be like, that's something very concrete that people could take away from our conversation. Yeah, I really like introducing Eskizis to this model. Um, and the way I think of Eskizis as a completely different way of thinking about sexuality. So yes, with Eskizis, it comes from um, an ancient Greek term. Um, later on in English, it, it developed into the word aesthetic. And this is where the, the early Christian monks took on that term to kind of form and shape themselves to be a, a better Christian. But Eskizis in the Greeks, that was a way to form and shape a better version of yourself. And so two examples that they use are athletics and being a musician. How does an athlete become a better athlete? Mm. Through training, through discipline, through all sorts of techniques so that they become a better athlete. And it's the same thing with being a better musician. Uh, to be a better musician, it's the same practices, the same techniques, uh, the same forms so that your skills get upgraded and you just become a better and better musician. And with both of them, you don't just all of a sudden achieve athleticism or achieve musicianship. You have to keep on disciplining and practice and training to, so you can stay at that higher level. Now, I was thinking, what if we could do the same thing with sexuality education, where we introduce the concept of ascesis so that students can become better versions or higher thinking level of what it means to be a sexual being. Right now in our, in our culture, we just kind of take whatever our culture says about sexuality for granted. And we just say, this is how things operate. This is how things are done. And mostly it just leads into the sexual act rather than think about it in a broader way. But if we can introduce ascesis, then all of a sudden we can help students guide what they consider their version of their sexual being rather than trying to fit them into this box or this category that our society has determined for them. And it's going to be a really creative, fun, but also challenging way to do it. Because athletics and being a musician, I mean, those have been around for centuries. So we know really good ways to develop that. But to develop a sexual being, um, that hasn't really been formalized. And so there has to be a really good creative teacher to help students develop their own sexual creativity, their own sexual being. And in the same way as Athletics and musicians have teachers or coaches to help you train yourself to be a better version of yourself. There has to be a really good sexuality, sexuality education teacher or coach so that it helps you ask the right questions. It helps you figure out ways to develop you into these particular ways so that you can become a better person or a better sexual person. And what's really interesting is that one training technique might work for this musician, but not for this musician. It's the same thing. Maybe this certain practice or discipline works for this person to develop their own sexuality, but it may not work for this person. So a really good teacher has to be in tune with each student to ensure, well, this is the way to help push that student towards uh, their fullest potential in developing their own creative sexuality. 
And what are, and could you talk about um, the three components? I didn't write them down, but I mean, they're like, they're, they're specific again. We've never really done it like this. Right. So like, how do you do this? But, but they are specific and I think they're understandable. And I think when people hear them, they're like, oh yeah, that makes sense that we should be developing those mm -hmm. capacities and, and people. Yeah. So uh, in my dissertation, um, because it's a brand new concept, I just thought, well, there's three things that I will just kind of use as a way to develop them. And I think some ways that we can apply ischesis are the sexual mind, uh, the sexual emotions, and the sexual body. Now, of course, there could be a lot more, but those are the three I picked. And the way that I think about each of those things is trying to develop key moments to help us train ourselves. And I bring in sexologists, I bring in philosophers, and I bring in a couple of other studies to kind of see what they've said about sexuality. Um, so for example, with sexual mind, I think using ascesis in the sexual mind is to really think about what sort of norms, what sort of values, and what sort of uh, emotional responses do you have regarding certain sexual practices? I remember when I was teaching an honors class specifically geared towards sexuality, and I brought up polyamory, and most of my students just kind of rebelled against that. And they just thought, you know, there's no way that uh, I could do that, but I think it's also just wrong. The next class period, I brought in a guest speaker who was polyamorous, and that helped them reconfigure their emotional response to polyamory. And I think emotions and beliefs go hand in hand. They're tied up really closely. And so if you change their emotional response, it also changes their attitude and their beliefs toward polyamory. And towards the end of the class period, a good majority of my students said, you know, now I'm starting to reconsider that maybe polyamory is uh, a way or a type of relationship that could be done. And I'm not so judgmental about that. And I thought this is a good exercise of ascesis that my students went through. Mm -hmm. For the um, sexual emotions, I think it's going to be very similar where if you have a certain emotional response to certain sexual activities or even a way of being sexual or even a certain uh, presentation or characteristic of who you are as a sexual being or a gendered being, then the ascesis that can be developed or the tools that can be in there are ways that you can think critically about why do I have this feeling? Is this feeling something that's genuinely for myself or is this feeling coming about because I was trained this way through my culture? Maybe it's my society coming out of me telling me to respond this way rather than my genuine self telling me this. And so going through that critical process can help you determine whether those feelings and then those attitudes are really coming from you or really coming from society. And then the sexual body, uh, I think is really telling because when it comes to sexuality, I mean, it's, it's a very bodily thing, whether it's the act or whether it's a presentation and our society, our culture really diminishes the body and really highlights the mental, really highlights the mind. And when we've, we highlight the mind and sort of downplay the body, we tend to ignore it. 
And by ignoring the body, I think it does a disservice to how we think about our sexuality. So part of the ascesis, and this is where it gets interesting because I have to bring in um, not only philosophers, but websites and other ways of helping people think about uh, sexual bodies into in a, into in a way that where they think about ascesis such that they think about their own body and whether the responses to other bodies is coming from, again, themselves, or is it coming from those societal expectations? And so uh, some sex, sex educators have uh, talked about pornography, for example, to see if people's reactions to them are really coming from a societal norm or if it's coming from themselves. And not only just the reaction to pornography, but the content in pornography, because a lot of mainstream pornography kind of follows this sort of script. Mm -hmm. And there's another website that I highly recommend that is really good to help people think about their body sexuality, and it's the omgs.com. And it's basically a program where uh, they interview lots of women and they discuss how they masturbate. And throughout the whole process, throughout the whole interview, um, the website shows different styles, different techniques. And when someone goes on there, they can learn about these different techniques, these different styles, and it might light up in their head, oh, I never thought about this before. This is another way of getting turned on. This is another method of highlighting or thinking differently about my sexual body. And that's another form of using ascesis. And so it helps them thinking about their sexual body using these different tools and critically thinking about the sexual body. I love it. First of all, um, I, I don't remember who directed me to omgs.com, but it was my doctor did actually. It was my doctor because you literally can, yes, watch different women talk about like, here's how my body works. Here's the best way for me to feel pleasure in my body because we're, we all have different bodies, right? So you could, and I was like, this is the coolest thing ever. This is sex education, right? This is sex education where I actually can like watch a demonstration and try it out. And then I wanted to say a couple of other things because when you brought up polyamory, you know, unfortunately, when we don't talk about these things, then uh, people will fill in the blanks with whatever misinformation or disinformation there is. And so I had a conversation with an, one of my other PhD buddies who um, is a sexologist and a relationship coach. And she really helped me understand that polyamory isn't even always about or necessarily about sex. Polyamory is many Love. Right. So we had this amazing conversation about how do, what are all of your needs and through what relationships do they get met and to project all of your needs onto a single person is not fair. Actually, <laughs> it's, it's really not fair to expect that. And one of my clients at, listened to that episode and she mm -hmm. said, Oh my gosh, my husband and I had the most amazing conversation after listening to that, because we thought maybe it was about sex, but it turns out it really wasn't. Now think about that. 
wow. So, but they didn't have a framework and they might've gone down this road that for some would be good, but for them that it wasn't really getting at what this polyamory was. And then the other thing I wanted to say is, you know, let's say, you know, in this, you're teaching sort of this critical, critical thinking, this capacity to go, okay, I'm feeling this way. Is that like authentic because it makes me feel oppressed or is this a good, actually a good norm? And so the more that you're able to wrestle with it yourself, you might even adopt the cultural norm, but you're informed about why you adopted the norm and why it is good for you. Cause this isn't all about like, oh, all these norms are bad. It really is like coming into a relationship um, with yourself. And then of course the body, mm-hmm. I'm all, I'm all about that because we're all overdeveloped in our masculine. And I found that in order for me to actually come into relationship with my feminine, I had to come into relationship with my body and sexuality, because those are the things that have been denigrated. Right. So it makes sense. Then you got to go backwards. Mm-hmm. So uh, you have to, the body has to be part of this. Um, so, oh, this is so great. I hope already my listeners feel empowered to just think about their own sexuality in a different way. And more importantly, their children and being a witness to how their children are exploring their own. Cause it's going to be different. So maybe they can even like broaden their thinking about that. So on to heterosexual male sexuality. So what's the deal with how we're talking about men and sex and why isn't it working? You touch on how beliefs related to sexuality. Well, I say this are basically corrupted by patriarchy, which is based on hierarchy and ranking. That's really the problem. And it's been destructive, not only for women's sense of self and sexual experiences, but for men as well. So, you know, so talk a little bit about why, what we're doing, how we're talking about it is not working. Yeah, the way that we think about masculinity is that there is certain expectations that men have to fulfill. But what's interesting, and I've noticed this in my classes, is that whenever I discuss, uh, whenever I discuss feminism and the history of feminism, the ideas behind them are that um, women are not equal to men in the past, and the whole point of feminism is to show that they ought to be equal, that they are moral equals, and that women had these certain expectations, these certain roles in the past, and then they can just let that go. And I have some really smart students in my class that say, while that's true, men also have certain roles and expectations. How come that's not discussed? And I always respond, that's a really good question. I think it should be discussed. And I think that we can incorporate a larger framework to think about how masculinity has also been kind of boxed in, where you have to have certain roles, certain expectations, and certain ways to carry yourself so that you fit into this masculine norm. Um, Here's an interesting example about myself. I actually am better at forming friendships with women because I feel like I can just be myself and I can just present myself in who I am and I don't have to really be boxed in into a certain framework or a certain label. Uh, I can just kind of let that go. But whenever there's men around or whenever I'm introduced to men that could be potential friends, and I don't know if this is conscious or not, 
But all of a sudden, we're just kind of sizing each other up about, well, who's the more manly out of us two? And who can um, one-up each other in our masculine performance or in our masculine behavior? And I notice that whenever I get caught up in that, I, I really don't like it. And I kind of pull back and I have to say, well, why do I do this? Why do I have to keep playing up with this game of trying, trying to size each other up? But applying this to sexuality, it had the same sort of feature, especially for heterosexual men, where there are certain expectations that they have to follow. And those expectations, if they fall short, then they feel like, well, they're not manly enough. They're not masculine enough. And those masculine behaviors are sort of this ideal that everyone has in their mind. And it can lead into very vicious or violent or toxic ways if they don't perform in that certain way. And what I want to do in that paper is show this is the way that uh, heterosexual masculinity has been received in the past. But what if we can change it? What if we can recalibrate it, maybe undergo some sort of ascesis so that we can reform masculinity into a positive vision rather than having these um, these negative attributes that's been associated with heterosexual masculinity in the past. And and one thing, um, I'm very I was I was wondering in for men who it is easy for them to develop friendships with women. Um, for a lot of women, that's refreshing for them because they also feel a lot of women, I think, discomfort around this male sizing up thing. So have you found that like, you know, have you, yeah, I mean, have you, what am I trying to ask here? I, it's, I love having male friends. I feel safe. Like, I just feel like, and I don't even know, you know, if it, I don't know where it's going to go, but mm. the, but there's almost like there's this mutual disarming going on, right? Where mm. if you are actually comfortable being yourself because you're with a woman, there is likewise this response on her part where now she feels more relaxed too. And there is research that, you know, friendships between men and women is very threatening to patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So think about like the psychological dynamic, the unconscious that's going there where you're like, okay, I don't need to size myself up to anybody. This is just a woman. We have something in common. We're going to have an intellectual conversation, whatever it is. Now she's like feeling more relaxed too. Like that's bad for patriarchy for men and women to just be kind of like, Hey, we could be friends. We don't have to be like, Oh, I need to position myself like this peacock. And you know, mm -hmm. women don't like that either. This, this game. So, uh, so I find that, I find that really interesting. And this leads to the next thing that you found, which is that I think that sizing up is exhausting for men. So you say, and this felt like like it's a good thing, but it's also frustrating for me as a woman at the same time is that men are not aware that they're not alone in wanting to resist toxic masculinity. They don't want to be part of this game, but mm -hmm. they have to be. And that they also, so when you're in that group of men, they also overestimate their male peer sexism and that they end up being complicit in sexism because 
not standing up to it affirms their manhood. Mm -hmm. So you say this, uh, you remind us that quote, this is your quote, being silent around sexism is how they become men. They either engage in sexist behavior or they fail to intervene, intervene for fear of being ostracized. And of course, this is the way of patriarchy. Patriarchy mm -hmm. is about maintaining this ranking. And so standing up for someone else means emasculating yourself. No, you wouldn't choose that, right? But this right. is the position that men are in, is that they feel like if they stand up for women um, and challenge sexism, that they will be emasculated in the process. Um, and I also love how you discern between masculine and toxic masculinity because they're different. The mm -hmm. masculine is not bad. The masculine and the feminine aren't even gender. We've gendered them. We all have both feminine and masculine parts of us. And Edward Edinger, a depth psychologist, called them styles of consciousness. So there's the feminine and the masculine ways of experiencing and exploring our human nature. But patriarchy elevated the masculine, denigrated the feminine, and then projected all the feminine onto women as a gender. And so we have this imbalance, this masculine on steroids, this toxic masculinity, which we need men and women to bring back into balance. And I wanted to mention this book because it came up for me when I was reading this in your um, article. Uh, it's called As Lovers Do, and it's by Mark Beneteau. Um, he does a beautiful job painting this picture of the fluidity of the feminine and the masculine within women and men. And that there's this dance that can happen when you don't, you know, have all these, this, uh, uh, these issues as for example, like there is a feminine and a uh, feminine and men who might want to be submissive, for example. And guess what? Women have a masculine that likes to be assertive sometimes. And so there is that fluidity. And when there is this, and you'll, we'll talk about this later when there is this like communication and understanding each other's desires, we can slip in and out of the masculine and feminine and have just this wonderful sexual experience. That's more authentic. So, so, you know, so I just said a lot, but go wherever you want to go with this uh, again about this, you know, this challenge for, for men. Um, and then what does it mean to elevate a different conception of masculinity? What are your thoughts about that? Yeah. So I kind of going back to, about how men and women could become friends, I think part of it is because um, putting down your your guard, your masculine guard, or this uh, expectation of what you're trying to do, it makes you a little bit more vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And when you're a bit more vulnerable, then you can uh, express more of who you are. Whereas with men, especially men sizing up with other men or trying to be friends with other men, you know, being vulnerable, that's not really a masculine trait. And so that's why they're not really trying. That's not, that's why they're not being vulnerable when other men are present, because then it puts their guard down. And then all of a sudden the other men can just say, well, now I'm the top dog in this whole thing. Now I'm more masculine. And so whoever this person is who let their guard down, they are now subservient to me, they're below me. Now, that sort of thinking in all types of masculinity is where a lot of men get kind of trapped in this box, it's called the man box. And this man box is 
certain expectations and norms and categories that men have to live up to to fit into this box. And if they don't fit into that box, then they're in trouble because then they're going to get judged, they're going to get criticized, they're going to get ostracized. And so kind of what you mentioned before about how if they don't stand up to something that's outside the norms of masculinity, then they'll be judged, they'll be ostracized. And so that's why I think a lot of men don't intervene. And studies show that whenever there's any sort of sexist behavior, uh, they do personally find it troubling, but they won't intervene because that's just not what you do as a man. You don't step in. So how do we change this? How do we bring about a better or a positive vision for masculinity? I think it's going to take a lot of work. And it's got to be a very different cultural movement where it's not going to be an overnight thing. It's going to have a lot of conversations and it could be a generational thing, but I think it's worth it where we take a look at different forms of masculinity and different ideas and try to, again, upgrade ourselves to be a better masculine presenting sort of person. Um, in that chapter, towards the end, I brought in ways that we could do this is bringing in uh, a better character and more specifically, a caring character. And a caring character combined with masculinity, it almost sounds like oxymoronic, but I think it can be done. There are definitely men who care and there are definitely ways that that can be incorporated into manhood into masculinity so that that can be reconceptualized into what it means to be a man. But I also think that they have to learn how to be more relational because I think a lot of men think about themselves as an individual encountering another individual. Whereas I think, especially in the sexual realm, any sort of intimacy, it's not just one individual encountering another individual, it's more relational. There's some sort of mutual dynamic that's happening. And that dynamism is going to be important where they have to gain some sort of knowledge, some experience behind that. Um, one book I, I would really recommend is by Laurie Mintz. It's called Cliteracy. And in the same way as, you know, in order to become more educated, you become literate. Well, to become sexually educated, you become cliterate. And she recommends these different ideas, different practices, so that both men and women can gain more cliteracy, so that there is, as part of the outcome, more mutual understanding, more mutual engagement, rather than just this individual to individual individual to individual enterprise that's happening. That makes me think of Dr. Brene Brown's work, of course, on vulnerability, uh, because it it is only in moments of vulnerability that we actually deeply connect. And what I really appreciate about her work is that vulnerability is not seen as a feminine or masculine or man or woman thing. She sort of just said, this is a, this is a value and this is a state. And I remember reading that you know, she started doing her research, I think on women. And after a while, men would start coming up to her and saying, what about us? We have shame. We have vulnerability. I mean, think about the shame that men have, you know, the, the shame of 
being shamed by other men, but then, and, and also women don't make it easy for men to show vulnerability either. And she has this great quote, uh, someplace and it's, and it's basically, you know, women say they want more vulnerability from men and want men to be more relational. But then as soon as they are, they're like, hell no, man, buck up. And so, you know, we just like women need men to stand against sexism. Uh, men need women to also not shame them when they are vulnerable. And so we're sort of like addicted to this little, this little patriarchal thing that's going on. And actually, uh, Carol Gilligan, who wrote, why does patriarchy persist says that patriarchy actually now is a defense mechanism that we all use to avoid being vulnerable. So this is only going to change by conscious choice. It's not going to accidentally change because this is so entrenched and there's so much wounds. There's just a big fat patriarchal wound that we really all uh, sort of suffer from. So um, we could also have a whole interview about consent. And I mentioned you write about this in another book, but you really cut to the chase when you suggest that consent is merely a basic condition for avoiding sexual assault. I mean, that's just, just linger in that. That's it. It has nothing to do with good or ethical sex. And also I felt so sad to find out that research shows that for women, good sex is just sex that doesn't happen to be painful. And for men, good sex means having an orgasm. It's like that outcome. And what about all that beauty in the, in the middle that just the touching, the feeling aroused, the like all of that. So yikes, we have a lot of work to do. Um, so maybe you could now talk about what you mean by good sex. And you talk about three things, the need to learn about our partner's desires, or maybe even like the interest, the desire to learn about our partner's desires. Um, and then communicating desires. I think this is a whole area of, there's so much awkwardness around even like saying, um, you know, honey, I'd rather you do it this way. Because again, then we also don't want to make the guy feel bad either. There's just, oh my gosh. And then the third being this notion of invitations or gifts as a way of initiating sex. I really was intrigued, um, intrigued with that. Um, so yeah. The way that we think about pleasure sexual pleasure, it's also kind of confined into these boxes. The way that we can kind of step out of that is by just broadening our conceptions of pleasure. And part of this means really listening to our own bodies and trying to see what is it that our bodies want, not what we should want, because this is what society has told us, but really focusing and paying attention to the body. If the, the body is telling you something, but you still feel shame or embarrassment or uh, something negative, it's still telling us that this body is trying to achieve that, but the mind has sort of made a, a blockage towards that. So how do we try to make this into a new way where there's going to be some mutual pleasure that's happening? Well, I think learning about each other's desires in a non-shameful way is a good approach. And that also ties in with communication. The way that we do this is we just kind of sit down in front of each other and 
instead of asking, what is it that you like, what is it you desire? When we ask that, I think what we do is we go through a filter that says, I'm going to say this, oh, wait, but I can't say that. So I'm going to hold back on that. Mm. What if you could just blurt it out without thinking about it, being responsive, or even just writing it out? Um, and that way there's no expectation. There's no way that other people can be judgmental. And then this is just for yourself, perhaps. And then when you have that written down, then it kind of formalizes something in your mind about, oh, this is what I actually think about. This is what I actually believe. Um, because as a lot of writers and researchers point out, that as soon as you write something down, it kind of formalizes and cements your beliefs instead of it just kind of being this meandering thing in your mind. It kind of, it's, it's, it's there in front of you and you just realize, oh, so this is what's happening with me. The way that you can communicate that is you have to have a partner that is, that is really responsive in what sort of desires that there can be. I think for a lot of men, when they engage in some sort of sexual encounter, is that they first have this idea of, oh boy, I'm going to have sex. And this is going to be the greatest thing ever. But notice that the whole entire thinking is all about them. It's all about their orgasm. It's all about their pleasure. And the other person is a route to achieve that pleasure. But what if it was framed differently? What if instead they can still be excited about having sex, but then they think there's this person out there that wants to have this intimate, vulnerable sexual expression with me. Out of all the people out there, that person chose me. And that is awesome that they chose me. And I'm going to make sure that they don't regret that. And I'm going to make sure that they're going to have a really good time engaging in that encounter with me. What if men start thinking like that, where they think of that experience as a heightened development of engaging mutually with someone so that that sort of thinking is out of all the people out there, they chose me as something that is highlighted and that makes them feel wanted and special rather than something, oh, I deserve or I'm entitled to this because uh, I deserve pleasure, for example. So if pleasure is seen as mutual rather than just self-servient, I think that's a good start. With these invitations or gifts as a way of initiating sex, what if certain sexual behaviors or attitudes can be a way, again, of being vulnerable, but also a way of displaying yourself where we think of any sort of sexual activity as there has to be some sort of restricted consent. But these invitations and these gifts, I think kind of opens the door so that it pits consent on the sidestep I mean, it's still there, but it's not the focus. So one thing could be, what if your partner says, you know, I really want to do this sort of activity. Now, this other activity is something you never thought about. It never even crossed your mind. And so there's an invitation. And part of you might be excited, but another part of you isn't really sure. And that invitation kind of opens the doors for you to possibly engage in that activity, even though you're unsure. Now, with 
strict consent language, that seems problematic. But if we make this into an invitation language, that's not problematic because you are still engaged in this activity, both excited and nervous, and consent is still happening, but it's not focused. You can still say no, you can still opt out, but that invitation is helping you to think about, huh, this is something I never thought about before. This invitation is not threatening. And again, with the vulnerability, it hits both people on the same page. I mean, this is all assuming a really good relationship, but that's part of the idea. And the, the gift is also um, exposing that vulnerability as well, where, I mean, a common example would be something like if a partner is going to leave town for a week, you give them the gift of some sort of intimacy or sexual behavior, even though um, maybe you're just not in the mood for that moment, but it's a nice gift to kind of say goodbye. And that's something that I don't think we talk about that much. That's just a small example, but those sorts of invitations and gifts really opens the idea, opens the door of what it means to be intimate, what it means to be a sexual being, rather than this restrictive lens of masculinity, consent, or focusing on uh, behaviors, rather than what sort of person gives this gift, what sort of person gives these invitations. All sorts of things come up for me, um, including, I mean, invitation sounds intriguing and exploring, and it, it implies that we might not know the ultimate outcome. So a couple of things, I, a client comes to mind, um, young couple, young children, tired, right? Like how we want to be intimate, but... And she described this feeling of in the evening, like her husband would start to make this little move that she knew, okay, I know where this is going. And she became exhausted at the thought of that. And so all we simply did was talk about, well, why don't we just reframe what pleasure and intimacy means? Uh, intimacy doesn't need to automatically mean we're eventually we're going upstairs. We're going to do like the whole process just made her like exhausted. And that made the difference for her. Like they found intimacy in different ways. It wasn't even necessarily like the, the sex act. The other thing is really thinking about pleasure. So in my situation, when my marriage fell apart in my midlife and I didn't know that I had this, these wounds of sexuality and spirituality. And, and so that's a whole big long story, but there was this, uh, period of time I had been swept up in this relationship that was very intense, but the per the, the guy had a conflict having sex outside of marriage. And so there was so much desire. I could have just kissed like for six hours. Like I, I actually didn't even think about like that. And there was this long period of time during which we couldn't be intimate. And I'll tell you, that was my time where sexuality and spirituality came together because by myself and periods of meditation and openness and surrendering and feeling vulnerable and like feeling like I was transferring the burden of all my issues onto something else is when I felt more pleasure than I had ever felt before. My most intense moments of pleasure have been alone, actually never with 
never with a guy they they've been alone. So I think even like exploring what pleasure is and what it means and getting away from this, like, okay. Uh, you know, a successful sexual experience is what you call PIV penis and vagina, because actually it's really all the stuff around that, that brings most of the arousal. And, and so like, I learned how to experience sustained arousal. Well, if you're just like, we go from A to B and then we, you know, have the sex act, you're missing on all sorts of opportunities. So, um, and then the other thing is, um, like understanding your own arousal and desire. I also went through a period where I had a fantasy of being submissive and, it came to mean, and this was during this time where I couldn't be intimate with this person that I was with and it tortured me. This, this fantasy just played out, but it ended up not being about literal sex. It ended up about being submissive and surrendering to this other part of me that was sexual in nature, but I might not have like experienced what I experienced if I had just assumed, well, this means I should have sex with this person as opposed to, so I think about your like developing moral character and your capacity to understand yourself. And sometimes you need to do like a solo class, right? In order to be able to then even have a conversation with someone else about it. Um, so, what and, and respond to that if you want, or what else comes to mind for you that you'd like to share with my listeners? I think all of that is is a really good way to think about ourselves and our sexuality, especially when you mentioned by yourself. Um, whenever we're with others, it automatically puts in uh, certain labels and expectations about how you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to act. Mm -hmm. I think a really good way to explore someone's sexuality is having moments of being by yourself. That way you get a better sense of um, who you are without any sort of influences around you. Um, it helps you think really deeply about what sort of ideas pleasures and desires you like and dislike. And then once that's meddled in, you are in a way of forming this ascesis feature about yourself where you're forming your sexual character such that it builds up this new form of who you are as a sexual being. And I think that's great to, that you've explored this all by yourself so that you can get a better sense of who you are. And I love it because again, this reminds me, you know, my framework is Carol Jung and individuation, but this concept of what he calls the transcendent third. So when you're able to sort of hold the tension between two different ideas, so you could have this emotion, like you said, and this feeling, but then yet you also have like this competing what's going on in my body here. And your mind is going crazy, trying to judge and compartmentalize and all that kind of stuff. But if you actually can hold the tension and say, let me, let me explore this, that eventually something new comes out of it, a new kind of acceptance of yourself, which should lead to less shame. It should. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I love it. I love this thesis. Perfect. <laughs> I'm glad you do. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. So 
Um, this has been so awesome. Like what's next for you? You've written chapters for other books. Um, what else are you working on? And then also how can people, and I will have links, but what do you want to share with people? Um, uh, maybe you can mention these two books that you've contributed to, and then you want people to follow you so you can keep them, you know, posted on what's next for you. Yeah. So, uh, the articles that we discussed today, <clears throat> they're in these anthologies. One of them is the uh, the Rutledge Handbook of Sex and Sexuality. That's where my masculinity paper is in. Um, my dissertation is all about sex education. And I've written a paper specifically on sexual consent and sexual autonomy. And that's in the Palgrave Handbook of Sexual Ethics. Um, if you want to know more about me, um, and I will have links to those uh, those articles, uh, just links to another web page, which is my academia page. But that website is seanmiller.blog. That's S H A U N M I L L E R.blog. And that just tells you everything about who I am and the links to those various articles. Um, I'm, I'm pretty active on certain social medias. I mean, I, I, I mostly go on Instagram, and my handle there is at coffee and research. And it's just as it looks as uh, I post various pictures of coffee because I am a huge coffee snob. Um, this is either my own concoctions or various places I go to, but I also display my research. And what I'm really thinking about working on now is still different avenues of sex education, great ways of how it could be taught. I'm trying to think beyond consent and I've done a little sidetrack where I'm thinking about um, bioethics and thinking about how uh, thinking about our genetics and bioethics kind of goes in hand in hand. And so it's a little offshoot of a little different project I'm doing, but I'm mostly doing a lot of sexual ethics as well. Oh, that's great. And I don't know, maybe in the future you could come back, we can talk more and and maybe we could do something that's more of like a little curriculum for my listeners. We could, I, I would love to just, dig in deeper to one of these components. Um, so Sean, thank you so much for being my guest and helping my listeners explore a topic that is so personal and so powerful and lacks an adequate framework for even, you know, exploring really appreciate it. Well, thank you for inviting me. This was definitely a lot of fun and thank you for this conversation. I'm your host, Deborah Lukovich, and you are listening to Dose of Depth Podcast. To get updates on new episodes, my writing, and how I teach my clients to get to know that deeper part of themselves, go to DebraLukovich.com. Oh, and if you're not ready for a coach, learn what my clients know in my book, Your Soul is Talking. Are you listening? Five Steps to Uncovering Your Hidden Purpose. You can check it out on my website or get it on Amazon.